Now I would invite you to turn to the book of Revelation. This evening we'll be looking at chapter 17. We continue our march towards the end of this last book of the Bible. Just a few more chapters left before we complete it. This evening we'll be looking at the great harlot, Babylon, as John describes her for us before we see next week, well, no, two weeks from now, uh, the great fall of Babylon. So if you'd please give attention to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. These are indeed the words of life. Revelation chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit to go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over the, these are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen, and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God is put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. 
And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this evening that you would remind us that you are sovereign, that you are victorious, and that we are protected by you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you've had this experience where you see something or read something or hear about something and it is it turns out not to be what it seemed. It seems like we see this every day now, so much so that the word Photoshop has become a verb. We talk about photoshopping pictures, airbrushing out pounds from people, changing people's bodies. Perhaps some of you have seen a famous advertisement that was used to describe how oftentimes in the world of advertising, women are especially made out to be something that they are not. This advertisement shows a picture of a woman who is all done up in makeup, and then there is a quick motion photography of how she has been changed through all the various hairstylings and makeups and applications and changes. We see this all the time, too, when we look and we see all of the great deals that are available to us. And there are products that we just can't live without now because if we don't get it now, it'll never come back again. Right? Perhaps you felt like that in your own heart. Perhaps someone else has come up to you and described these sorts of deals. Well, what we're seeing here this evening is something like that. We're seeing the great harlot, the great prostitute Babylon, and we're seeing her as being something that is not what she seems to be. And this is important for us because the great harlot is not simply a mythological story. Babylon is not merely some ancient city, but this is a description of the system of the world the great city of the world that seeks to war against the Lord and the city of God. It is a battle that has gone on since Cain and Abel. And it will not be resolved until the Lord resolves it in victory. And so what I would like us to see briefly this evening are three things about evil. First, that evil is deceptive. Second, that evil is destructive. And third and most comforting, that evil is defeated. Deceptive, destructive, and defeated. Let's begin then by looking at the deceptive nature of evil. Look with me at verse 1. We see John being pulled aside by one of the seven angels who has one of the seven bowls. This is the wrath of judgment that God is bringing down upon those who rebel against him. And he says, come, I will show you the great judgment or the judgment of the great prostitute. And we see this woman, and she is seated on many waters. She is seated in a place of wealth, of prosperity, of seeming fertility. And the kings of the earth seem to be fascinated with her. She seems to have them under her thumb, as it were. They've committed sexual immorality with her and with the wine of her sexual immorality. 
And she is a woman who is sitting on top of a great beast, a great scarlet beast, and she is clothed in the finest of clothing. Now, you need to imagine this. As we start to think about Revelation and we're talking about beasts and titles like the great prostitute, you, you may miss the image. This is the next fashion model sitting on a great and powerful beast. She is gorgeous beyond belief. She is dressed in the greatest of clothing. She has the best um, accoutrements, the best necklace and bracelets and rings. She has gold about her. She has uh, jewels and pearls. She is the sort of woman that, as you see from a distance, she makes men's head turn. She is seemingly everything that is good and beautiful and right about the world. But the difference is John takes us in from that distance to see what is going on in reality. Because, you see, one of the main things we need to remember about evil is that it is deceptive. Evil can be attractive. Think of even the way in which we see evil in fairy tales. Think of the story of Snow White. We see this wicked woman with a poisoned apple looking like a hag and coming before Snow White to try and kill her. But remember how she originally appeared. as a beautiful woman looking into her mirrors asking if there was anyone in the world more beautiful than she. You see, evil comes before us not ugly and harsh, but with a level of attractiveness Satan does not come alongside and tempt you in a red jumpsuit with a tail and horns. The Bible tells us that he comes as an angel of light. There is a reason why it's temptation. If it was something we were repulsed by, we would run away. But you see, evil here is attractive. But one of the things that's important to remember is it is a superficial attractiveness. For all that this great prostitute is dolled up in, at her core, she is ugly. Not physically, but in her being. And we see this also, don't we, in our society? It seems like one of the fascinations of the people who take pictures and put them in magazines is to try and find opportunities to catch an actress or a supermodel out on the town in sweatpants with no makeup. And we all look and we say, wow! I wonder how long it takes to put makeup on each morning to make that change, that transformation. But you see, that's what's going on here. There is a superficiality to this attractiveness. It is something that seems to be good and isn't at first. Perhaps even some of you kids know this and see this from, have you ever had a toy that seemed like it was going to be perfect? Maybe a car or a doll or something, and it, it, you thought it would be something you'd play with forever. And it was just perfect, and it was the best thing in the world, and you bring it home, and as soon as you start to use it, it breaks. Or it doesn't work. And you're just miserable about it. Not only because it doesn't work, but because you had such high hopes, such high expectations of it. See, that's what the world does. And that's what the world tries to do to Christians. It tries to portray its attractiveness to us so that we would fall for it. But it is a superficial, a short-lived attractiveness. So the question that I ask you is, what are you attracted to? 
I think specifically and pointedly, I'd like to ask the young people. What are you attracted to in someone that you would consider a potential mate? Is it the shape of her legs? Or the wisp of her hair? Or the size of his biceps? Or the deepness of his tone? You see, God has made us to understand and see beauty, but the reality is we need to be looking for real beauty, for godliness, for holiness. And this is not just true for those who are here among us who are not yet married. This is true of those of us who are married as well. What do you seek to encourage in your spouse? Are you obsessed with them losing a few pounds or working out a bit more at the gym? Or working over their hair somehow? Or do you seek to build them up in the Lord? To make them prayer warriors? Bible readers? You see, the world has this kind of superficial attractiveness. But the reality is there's nothing there. It is indeed a counterfeit. And actually that's another thing that this great prostitute is. We will see in a few chapters to come that she is the great counterfeit of the bride of the Lamb. She appears to be beautiful, but is not. Appears to be faithful, but is not. Don't settle for second best. The Lord has the best for you. And the best for you is Jesus Christ. The best for you is following the Lord in His Word. Everyone around you will seek to draw you in different directions. You must resist that temptation because evil is deceptive. Evil is not only deceptive, it is also destructive and that is what makes the deception so dangerous because you see, this kind of evil seeks to destroy the Lord and all that He is building. We see this here because this evil wars first against God but then also even against itself. First, it wars against God. There is a sort of worldwide alliance here. Babylon represents the city of man. It is the world system that shakes its fist against God. As we saw last week, it also describes the way in which the Tower of Babel was built. Shaking the fist against God. One of the things that I have to admit kind of gets on my nerves a bit is the way in which in modern evangelical reform circles, it's sort of assumed that the city is good. That we must do things in the city, because Paul was in the city. And so therefore, everything about the city must be good, and we must build up the city. We must be, a phrase that bothers me quite a bit, we must be for the city. That's not quite correct. We must be for the Lord. And the Lord must be found in cities, but cities in themselves are no more good or holy or just or powerful than any other place. Because you see, cities can be concentrations not only of godliness, but also of sin. And that's what we see here. We see the enemies of the Lord coming together to make war against the Lord. There are seven kings. And this number here, I think, is a figurative number. You... You recall that we have tried not to delve too much into the book of Revelation and try and parse out and assign names and meanings to everyone. This is another favorite. People try and figure out who the seven kings are. And they they are sure that 
Because there are five who were, a sixth who is, and a seventh to come. They're sure that this is Nero. Nero is the sixth king. And these are describing various Roman emperors. There's only one problem with that. Nero is the fifth Roman emperor. Wait a minute. So what we then do is we say, ah, well, what about Julius Caesar? He's sort of an emperor. Let's count him. Then who's the seventh king? Well, the only problem is after Nero, there are three Roman emperors in succession. One only lasts two weeks. So who are they? You see, this is the trouble when we try and pinpoint what's going on in Revelation. I think we miss the big picture. When we see about these seven kings, we see that this is a description of the completeness of the world system against God. And we can take great encouragement from the way it is described. We're not trying to worry about who is Nero and who is Caligula and who is Galba and who is Otho. No, we are saying to ourselves, this is a whole world system and five of the seven are already done with. The sixth we're struggling with now, and there is a seventh to come that God will judge. But we are near the end. It's like a road trip, right? How many of you have answered that seemingly eternal question? Are we there yet? With, yes, we actually are almost there. You see that sign? We'll be there in 30 minutes. And it's amazing how almost being there stops future askings of that question. People start to get excited about arriving. That's what I think John wants us to see, that we are close to victory. We are close to vindication. We are close to God defeating those who would attempt to destroy Him and us. And we take comfort from that. You see, the time is drawing short. Not only are five of these kings passed, but you will see here in verse 12, that the time of the kings, the time of this, these kings to have power is but for an hour. A very short span of time. So what you can gain from this, Christian, as you go throughout the day, and I know you will struggle this week. People will attack you. Finances will be hard. Sickness will come. Sadness will come. You can say in your heart of hearts, I'm almost there. God's taking care of me. He won't let me be consumed. This is a great comfort for us because, in a sense, this is a same old, same old story. This assault upon God by the kings, this great war that comes against them, is nothing new. It's the same story of the beast who came up from the abyss in chapter 11. It's the same story of the beast who rose up from the sea to make war in chapter 13. It's the same story of the great gathering of the kings of the east in chapter 16 who sought to make war on the Lord and His people. It will be the same story we see in chapter 19 when all of the kings of the earth ride against the Word Himself on a white horse. And we will see it in its final iteration in chapter 20 when the dragon, Satan himself, is released for a short period of time. This is the story of life on earth before the final victory. Evil is destructive. And it seeks to make war against the Lamb. Do you see that here in verse 14? They make war on the Lamb. But that is their greatest mistake. 
Because you see, the Lamb cannot be defeated and He will conquer them. Satan will not give up his war on Jesus, but it is the very fact that He is at war with Jesus that gives us our greatest comfort. It is our King who rides forth to win the victory. This brings us to our third and final point this evening. That not only is evil deceptive and not only is evil destructive, we need to remember that evil is defeated. That God is in control. And John tells us this in the most interesting fashion. They make war on the Lamb, and then they also make war on the great prostitute. Do you see this here in verse 16? And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now, why do they do this? Aren't they on the same side? Now, we could think to ourselves, maybe this is the, the classic story of thieves falling out. Uh, you know the story, how it goes. If someone, a group of men go out and rob a bank, they go and they take the the, uh, the proceeds home, and they, they wind up fighting in the robber's den over it. Maybe it's just that. Maybe it's just an argument. Maybe it's personalities. No. Because you see, it's very interesting. Verse 17 tells us why. They do this, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out what? His purpose. You see, they are self-destructive because God has decreed it to be so. Not only has God decreed His own victory, He has decreed that they will destroy each other. He is in complete control. Now, think about the great judgment of God here. What is the one thing, by definition, that, rebel, that rebels do not want to do? Submit. Obey. Right? That's why they're rebels. That's why they're in rebellion. And you see what God has done? He has taken the rebels and compelled them to submit to Him in obedience. To do His will. That's how powerful your God is. Not only can He defeat your enemies, He has complete authority and control over your enemies. What a God we serve. What a blessing it is that He tells us this. You see, not only is God in control, God brings us this by way of assurance to let us know that the battle has been won and we do not need to fear the future. As Christians, we are going to be tempted to be afraid of what is to come, whether it's the economy or our health or just the future in general. This chapter reminds us that there is nothing that the, all the powers of earth can do against the Lord and His people. That He is sovereign. That He is in control. That He will defend us and that He will defeat all His and our enemies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You have described for us this great scene of battle and victory. We thank you, Lord, too, that you have let us know of the great deception that evil would seek to purport upon us. Lord, we ask this evening that you would come to us, sustain us through 
any temptation we would face. We ask this for your namesake and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.